Hello and welcome to the Legacy Church Sermons Podcast. At Legacy Church, we help people find their identity in Jesus and their place in His mission to impact the world through the gospel. We ask that you grab your Bibles, listen up, and we hope that you hear a great word from the Lord today. How many of you occasionally take Alka-Seltzer when you're not feeling well? Is that a medicine that you take? Yeah. It's a weird one, isn't it? It's a weird one. I've been fascinated since I was a kid with Alka-Seltzer. It was always funny on the commercials watching it. You get it in your hands, and it's solid, right? It seems firm. I'm squeezing it. It's good. It has a specific job to do, and, and you got to put it in there for it to do its work. And so you drop it in water. When you drop Alka-Seltzer in water, it begins to make a fuss. It gets noisy. Can, I don't know if you can hear it. Can you hear that? Yeah. It fizzles, it bubbles, kind of makes a mess on your counter a little bit. And as it fizzles, eventually it fizzles out and it, it disappears. You can't see it anymore. And then you drink it and it leaves a bad taste in your mouth, right? How many of you have known somebody who's a little like this when it comes to their faith? Yeah. If you've known someone like this, a family member or a friend, a church member, and they've been kind of... Kind of like Alka-Seltzer, sometimes it leaves a bad taste in your mouth. And it makes you begin to have some concern. You worry about them. You worry about their faith. You worry about their relationship with the Lord. How many of you have had a friend like this? You thought they were solid in their faith, everything was good, and they kind of disappeared. And you, you begin to worry about them. And maybe you, you begin to turn that worry on yourself and you begin to think, what about me? Because there are moments where I go through something in life. I get into the middle of something and then I begin to to fizzle a little bit. What does that mean about me? What's it mean about my relationship with the Lord? Where do I stand with the, the Lord? And maybe you begin to wonder about your own salvation. And you want to know, you want to know, am I okay, right? This morning, we're going to turn to John 17 again. We started this last week. We're looking at this long prayer, the Lord's Prayer, Jesus's prayer in John 17. And what we found in John 17 is what is filling Jesus's mind, what is filling his heart, and what's coming out in his prayers when he is going through the most awful moment he has ever experienced, ever. A moment in which he confesses to his disciples. He says, I am grieved so deeply in my soul, I feel like I could die. And at that moment, what we saw last week, what was on his mind, first was God's sovereignty, that he was very confident in God's timetable, the divine timetable of his life, though he was facing some really scary stuff ahead, arrest and torture, crucifixion. He was confident in God's timetable. That was on his mind. God's sovereignty was on his mind. God's glory was on his mind, that God's glory would be seen by all people, even if it cost him everything and it would cost him his life. But it was important to him it was not only right, but it was good that God's goodness, God's justice, God's holiness, God's love would be revealed. It would be seen. He would be glorified so that people would see God's glory and they would turn to him. That's on his mind in one of the darkest moments, the darkest moment he's ever experienced. And he really had on his mind, we saw this last week, eternal life for us. We saw this verse, chapter 17, verse 3, one of the most important verses that helps us to understand what it is that God wants for you. Jesus defines eternal life. He says, this is eternal life. This is it. You want to know what it is? This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one and only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And there's a question. When you read the Gospel of John, it just leaps off the page again and again from the beginning to the end. The question is, do you know Jesus? 
It's not do you go to church or did you pray the prayer or, or, or do you follow the Ten Commandments better than your neighbor? It's the question, do you know Jesus? Do you know his love for you? Have you received a free gift of eternal life and salvation from Jesus? And this is on Jesus' mind in this prayer that we would know him. And I'll tell you this, I've known Jesus for over 30 years, right? And yet I still, time and time again, I struggle. I keep struggling with this feeling like I need to prove myself to myself, to people in my life, to you, to God. I feel, I know him, but I feel sometimes like I have to prove myself. Does anybody ever feel like you got to prove yourself to people? Maybe that's not you. Maybe others of you, you go, sometimes I just do wonder because sometimes I do fizzle a little bit. And, and I've seen other people fizzle. And I wonder about my faith and if it's strong, if it's strong enough, am I good with God? Maybe some of you, you put your relationship with God on hold for a little bit. You put it on pause and you walked away or you just weren't as uh, faithful as you once had been. But now you're here. You're sitting here. So at least you made that decision. But you're here and you're looking at God and you're going, okay, God, where do we stand now? Are we good? Are we Okay. Who am I to you and who are you to me? And you wonder, am I secure? And you want to know, am I secure? And this morning what I want to do is I want you to see through the prayer of Jesus what he has to say about the Christian and the security of their soul, the security of their salvation, about eternal security. He talked about eternal life. He's going to talk about, pray about eternal security. And I want to do so in such a way that your experiences, your own life can be looked at in the light of what Jesus has to say, and it can be helpful to you and me when we come to wonder and to, to doubt how our faith is. And so you've got John 17 open, and I want you to hear this. John 17, starting in verse 6. Jesus is praying. His disciples are eavesdropping with permission. He says, I have manifested your name, Father, to the men you gave me out of the world. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they have come to know that everything you have given me is from you. For the words which you gave me, I've given to them, and they received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. I ask on their behalf. I do not ask on behalf of the whole world, but of those whom you have given me. For they are yours, and all things that are mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. I'm no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. And I come to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, the name which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are. And while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name which you've given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled." It's the word of the Lord. I mean, literally, it's the prayer of Jesus to his Father in heaven. And you read that, and again, like last week, we're back to the mosquito at the nudist colony, looking around going, where do I begin, right? And there's so much in these few verses for us to explore. And the only thing I could think of is there are three questions that I want to give you this morning that we want to try to answer from this prayer. Three questions that you might look at in times of doubt in your own life of faith or in that of a family member or a friend, someone where you're just not sure, three questions that we'll look at and be answered so that it can help us to know if we are secure or not. And the first question is very, just head on the nose, can I know or how can I know that I am spiritually secure? How can I be sure? On what grounds can I know that my soul is spiritually secure? And the answer is layered all throughout the text, but We'll start in verse 6 as he begins to answer this in his prayer, this question. And we know that we're secure because of this, because of the nature of God. 
on the groundwork of the nature of God himself. And this is what Jesus says in his prayer that points to this. He says, Father, I have manifested your name. To manifest means to make known or to reveal something. He says, I have manifested your name. And God's name is more than a bunch of symbols and noises that can be uttered. His name represents his nature. His name represents his character. It tells of his reputation. His name declares who he is to everyone who might know him. And that's, that's true of all of us as well, that our name is not just a bunch of letters and noises that can be uttered out loud, but they carry with them a story, right? Our story, the story of who we are and, and where we've been and where we're going and what we have done. That's the nature of names. Names point to nature. If I say the name Michael Jordan or Air Jordan, it's not just a name, but it carries with it all of these things, it carries with it greatness and perseverance and winning and high-flying dunks. You see the name Michael Jordan, and you have this whole story that's told simply by two words that are uttered, right? Same thing with me. If my kids call out dad, it's not just a word. It's not a one-syllable word that, that defines who I am, but it represents a relationship. It marks a responsibility I have and a care I have for them and a dependence that they have upon, upon me. When I hear dad, it's not just a word. It carries with it a lot of stuff. And Jesus says, I have revealed your name, Father. And in other words, I have lived in such a way that when people have seen me, they have seen you. And it's been an accurate picture. And he, he said this over and over again in his ministry. He said it to Philip, and Philip was doubting, how will we know? And he says, you'll know because if, you, if you've known me, you've known the Father, right? He said this in John 12, he who sees me sees the one who sent me. Jesus says, I've manifested his name. They've seen me live. They've heard me speak. They know what God is like. They've seen me. They've seen him. Same thing in, in John, opening of John, John's gospel. He says, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has, somebody say, explained, He's explained him. Jesus explained him by his life and by his lips. Right? One of Jesus' favorite ways to explain God or to manifest God's name is by the combination of two Greek words, ego, eimi, ego, eimi, which means I am. Is that familiar to you? I am. Jesus said it a lot, didn't he? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Said, that's me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. He said, I am the true vine. I'm the vine, and you are the branches. You come from me. Everything comes from me. He said, I'm the bread of life. He said, I'm the door. He said, I'm the light of the world. I'm the resurrection and the life. I am, I am, I am these things. He said, even before Abraham was born, 41 long generations back, even before Abraham, I am, Jesus said. And every time he says, I am this, I am this, I am this, he is bringing out a unique characteristic of who he is and who he is for us and what he's doing for us. And in every one of these instances, he is connecting himself. He's declaring. He's saying, I am the great I am. I'm the eternal God. I am identifying myself as being the very same as the one who identified himself as the great I am in the Old Testament. Just as God said to Moses, to the people of Israel, even to his enemies, tell them, I am sent you. Jesus says, that's me. And he's defining what I am means. He's saying it's not just a word. It's not just some, some symbols and some noises. It's all of these things 
It's who I am. It's what I do. Namely, his rescuing, saving posture towards the world is what he's declaring. He's saying, who's God? I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. That's me. He's saying, I'm the source. I'm the source of everything, the true vine. Everything of life and of substance that bears fruit comes from from me. I am he. That's me. He says, you need food to nourish your soul. You're always trying to fill that, that hole in your gut that never seems to be satisfied. I am the one who nourishes you. I'm the bread of life. Jesus said, that's me. I'm the resurrection and the life. And what this means is for every Christian, for every person who has turned to Jesus and said, I'm giving myself over to you. You be my king. That person is secure, not because of themselves, but because he is the great I am. That's why they're secure, because he in his nature, has a securing, rescuing posture towards humanity. That's God's will. God's will is that not that he would smite us or blow us away because of all of our faults and all of our imperfections and all of our weaknesses, but his will is that every one of us would turn towards Jesus and receive from him eternal life. That's his posture. It's in his nature to be a saving God. So one reason you can know that you're secure, if you're in Christ, is because it's in God's nature to have a long-suffering mercy and grace towards you, to desire you to have salvation. That's one of the answers. There's a second one that points to, though, not just the nature of God, but the nature of salvation is the groundwork by which you may know you're secure. The nature of salvation itself, look at verse 12. Jesus says, while I was with my disciples, that's the them, while I was with the disciples, I was keeping them in your name in your who you are and what you do, who you intend to be in our life. I was keeping them tightly tied into that, those which you've given me, and I guarded them. And Warren Wiersbe wrote about how if Jesus could keep them so securely in his incarnate state, how much more can Jesus keep them securely in his exalted state? When he sits at the right hand of the Father and he has no limitations of the flesh and he has been given all authority over heaven and earth and he's the king over all kings, the king over all things, and he will be for all time. How much more secure can Jesus keep his people in his exalted state than in his incarnate state? I showed you last week John 10 and we talked about this is where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. Remember this? And I want you to hear verse 27 and 28 again, because verse 28, I think, is maybe the most succinct verse on telling us how secure our souls are in Christ. Verse 27 says, my sheep, Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, and my sheep hear my voice. I know them, and they follow me. Verse 28, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I want to break down verse 28 and show you the nature of salvation and how it's laid out here in Jesus' words. First, we're going to highlight some words. First, the word give. He says, I give them eternal life. Please do, never, do not ever make this mistake. You cannot earn by merits or lose by demerit salvation. It's nothing that you do. It's only what he does. He gives it to you, right? Second word to highlight. Highlight the word eternal Eternal life is what he gives. He doesn't give you six months to live or 60 years to live. He says, the life I give is absolute. The life I give is eternal. Life with God does not stop. It's absolute. He keeps it. I like the word never. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And Jesus literally uses a double negative here. So offend all of the English teachers in the room. But this is how it read. Jesus says, they will never know by no means ever perish. 
And that would not pass the, the SAT uh, test, but, but this is what Jesus says because he's trying to be very emphatic that nothing can break this relationship with God. Never, ever, ever. And then highlight this word. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus says no one. Do you know who no one includes? It includes you, yourself. It includes you, yourself. No one, not even yourself, will be able to sever the relationship I have with my sheep, is what Jesus says. You can't do it and no one else can do it for you. That's how secure you are in the good shepherd's hands. And to suggest otherwise is to suggest that Jesus doesn't keep the will of the Father. John 6 shows us this. John 6, all the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. I'll jump to verse 39. This is the will of he who sent me. The will of the Father is this, that of all he has given me I lose nothing no one, but I raise it up on the last day. Do you see the unified resolve between father and son, the unified resolve that none would be lost, not one? The intent on this, the nature of salvation is bound on this. It's a work that Jesus does, and he does his work perfectly, and nothing can interrupt his work. How can I know if I'm spiritually secure when I have doubts, when I begin to fizzle, when my neighbor or my friend is fizzling, how can I know I'm, I'm consumed with, like, what does that mean for me? Well, you can know because it's in God's nature not to cast you out or kick you out. It's in his nature to rescue you. And because it's the nature of salvation, that your salvation isn't based on anything that you do. It's not on your outward appearance or the things that you've done in the past. It's not on, on your strengths or your weaknesses. It's simply done upon Jesus' gift to you. And nothing can stop that. Nothing can break that. Nothing can take that away. It's the nature of salvation. And that leads to a, a third thing that we can answer this question with. How do I know if I'm spiritually secure? Well, God's intent on his own glory, the glory of God, his intention to glorify himself and your salvation tells you that you're secure. Listen to verse 10. Jesus is talking about his disciples. He's talking to his Father in heaven. He says, all these things are mine, are yours, and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in, in them. Jesus says you're, that, that he's been glorified in his disciples, those who didn't do it right all the time. In fact, we read a lot that they did it wrong. But God will be glorified in their salvation and in ours. Reminds me of a moment in the Old Testament with Moses on, on Mount Sinai. This is 40 days after the, the great exodus from slavery in Egypt. God brings them miraculously out of Egypt. You know the story. And he brings them into the desert mountain. Uh, Sinai is there. And Moses goes up the mountain and he says, Lord, what's next? What do we do? How do we move forward from here? And this is where he would receive the Ten Commandments. But what happens while he's on the mountain is the people down below, while they're waiting on God, they take their eye off of God. Do you hear that? While they're waiting on God, they take their eye off of God and they begin to doubt and they begin to wonder about Moses. He's been gone for a minute. Where's he been? Has he left us? Is he, is he dead? And they begin to be filled with con with, and consumed with doubt and with anxiety. And what do they do? They say, what are we going to do? I know. We'll build an idol and we'll worship an idol. That will solve all of our problems. And so they build a golden calf. And this is a sure sign of their destruction. Except up on the mountain, Moses is talking with God. And this is what Moses says to God. Exodus 32, 12. Why should the Egyptians speak of us, saying, with evil intent, God brought them out of Egypt to kill them in the mountains and to destroy them from the face of the earth? Hear the question? The question is, why would God save them from slavery in Egypt only to let them die in their sins in the desert? You understand the question? 
of all of the failures and the faults of the disciples, think about it. They know their failures more than we do. We read of them. We think that we can do better until we don't, right? But they know every one of their weaknesses just like you know every one of your weaknesses and I know every one of mine. All of those things that we try to push down with feelings of shame and with guilt, even with all of those things in their mind as they're sitting here listening to Jesus pray, they receive these words. Father, I have been glorified in them. And Jesus knows every mistake they made, every mistake they will make. Father, I have been glorified in them, and I will be glorified in them. And that's how God's glory will be seen. He will be glorified in the security of their salvation because it would not bring God glory to bring us out of the slavery to our own sins, to let us to die in the desert of our own sins. It would not bring God glory, and God's glory is on the line. And so take the words of Paul to the Philippians, and I think you can receive these over yourself right now. Paul says, for I'm confident of this. I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus' return. In other words, God will finish what he began. He will finish what he began. He won't start something in you and let it fizzle out. If you are truly in Christ, you will be in Christ to the day that he returns and you will be glorified with him because it brings God glory. It wouldn't bring God glory to bring you out of your own sin to let you die in your own sin, right? So three things in Jesus' prayer that answers this question. How do I know if I'm spiritually secure? The nature of God to be a saving God, the nature of salvation that it's not in my hands, it's in his hands and his hands are pretty good and the nature of God's glory. God intends to be glorified in your salvation. Do you receive that? Yeah? Second question then I want us to ask. What about when we doubt? How can I remember this? Who I am? What I've been given? All that's been promised for me? How can I be reminded of these things when I doubt? When I'm feeling the fizzle? When I'm in the deep water and life and, and I'm not feeling so firm anymore, what have I been given to help me remember who I am and what I've been given when I'm in doubt? Uh, verses 7 and 8 start the answer. Ready? Now they have come to know, Jesus is praying, and they've come to know everything you have given me is from you for the words. We're going to hang on that for a bit. For the words which you gave me, I gave to them, and they received them and truly understood because of the words. They understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. We have God's word to remind us who we are and what we've been given and what all is promised for those who are in Christ. The word of God is a precious gift. It's a gift. Verse 8 says the Father gave it. He gave the words to the Son. The Son gave the words to the disciples who in turn continued to give those words. That's why we saw a few weeks ago when we're moving through Acts that the early church was what? Continually devoted to the words. Because as they were devoted to the words, they were being reminded over and over again who they are in Christ. It was unfolding in their life. It was building in their life. It was building their life on the word of God. They were being reminded day by day through the things that they were facing, the difficulties, the identity crisis, the persecution, the problems, the family problems, the marriage problems, the economic problems, the the racial injustice, all of the things that they were going through, they would turn to the word of God. They were continually devoted to it and it would remind them over and over and over again who they are 
and what they've been given in Christ that they wouldn't forget and they wouldn't fizzle. And this is why we are so completely devoted to the Word of God as a church. This is why we have a Bible reading plan. If you're not doing it, there are bookmarks at the front desk. Get them when you go. And we're reading the Word together all year long. This is why when we choose songs, we don't just pick the most popular songs. We carefully select songs that declare the truth of the Scriptures. And we make sure that, that there's nothing in the song that takes us away from the, the truth of the Word of God. That's why when I don't come up here and I just give you a about what I think about life and all the things. Who cares what I think, right? We have divine words from God in heaven who made all things and in whom our salvation is found, and he has spoken to us. He's given his, us his, his words to live by, and so we hold them up, and we look at them, and we inspect our lives in light of them, and they guide us. They're a lamp into our feet and a light to our path. So what kind of relation do, do you have with the word of God? I mean, is it something that you're in? Do you know it? Do you read it? Is it a lamp into your feet and a light into your path? Have you treasured it deep in your heart so that it could be that? Do you, do, do you read it and are you constantly reminded of who you are and what you've been given? Have you even given it a chance to do that for yourself? Have you given the word of God a chance to speak to you who you are? In moments of doubt, in moments of fear, in moments of success to tell you where success comes from, where every good and perfect gift comes from above, Right? Have you given it a chance to do the work it is intended to do in your life? Verse 7, again, now they've come to know everything you've given me is from you for the words. The words you gave me, I gave to them. They received them. They understood them, that I came from you, and they believed. They believed because they had the words, right? Take the words and believe. Now, the second answer to the help we're given, we have the word. Second answer is we have the intercessory ministry of Jesus. That's something that we don't think about a whole lot. Here's John 11. Jesus is going out to raise Lazarus from the dead. And just before he does, he calls out in prayer out loud, Father, thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me. <laughs> you want to take Jesus at his word? The Father always hears the prayers of the Son. And in John 17, he's praying for us. Verse 9, I ask on their behalf, keep them in your name. You hear that? He's praying for his disciples. He's praying for those who follow him. I ask on their behalf. They don't have to ask for themselves. I'm asking. You always hear my prayers. You honor my prayers. My prayers are in line with your will. I ask on their behalf. Keep them. Keep them. You're secure. Jesus is praying for you. Keep them in your name. Keep them in your will. Keep them in your care. Keep them in your love. Keep them near. Keep them connected to your glory. Jesus says, I've physically been with these guys. I've been walking with them for a while now, and I have done that work. I have made sure when they begin to turn a foot this way or turn a foot this way, no, no, this is the way that we're going, guys. And I've kept them in your will, but now the hour has come. Remember verse 1, Father, the hour has come for me to ascend. So, Father, I ask on their behalf, I won't be here like I was to help them the way I did. Would you keep them? Keep them connected to every good thing I've tried to pour into their life while I was walking with them. Now, I want you to notice in verse 9, this is, this is a little, stands out off the page a little bit. It's a little odd. He says, I ask on their behalf, and I left this part out, I do not ask on behalf of the world, but I ask on behalf of those whom you have given me. What, what does this mean? It's in line with 1 Corinthians 1.18 that says this, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. What that means 
is that Jesus' intercessory ministry is good for those who turn to him to receive salvation. It's not effective for the whole world. It's effective for those who lay down their lives and say, you be my king. Every bit of me belongs to you. And Jesus continues to plead on our behalf. Hebrews 4 tells us this. Hebrews 4 tells us what Jesus is doing right now. You want to know what Jesus is doing right now? Hebrews 4 tells you. It says, he is our great high priest who sits at the right hand of the Father, sits on the throne, and he advocates for us at all times. He's going before us. He keeps us connected to God. He keeps us connected to God. He helps us hold fast to our confession. And it says he beckons us. He invites us to come near to the throne of grace that we might experience. We might really know that we know that we know his mercy and his grace in our lives each and every day. He is at the right hand of the Father right now as our great high priest. And by the way, the Father has all this great and, and, and good mercy and grace for us. The Son has all of this inviting and beckoning us to come in close and experience it, but it's not just the first person and the second person of the Trinity, it's the third person of the Trinity. Remember Romans 8? Last year, a huge study of Romans 8, we said the Holy Spirit on the today or tomorrow or next week or whenever you're full of doubt or fear or insecurity, whenever you feel beaten down or like you're fizzling out, the Holy Spirit groans for you with utterances too deep for words. And we talked about in that passage how he just talked about how uh, the groaning is like the groaning of birth pangs. It's not groaning to death like, oh, they're so awful, I'm going to die. It's like groaning that life would come forth in us. He's groaning that things aren't as they should be, but they one day will be. So when you are doubting and having concerns about your own faith, please remember, please remember that that we have a Father in heaven who is full of grace and mercy, a Son who begs us to come near, and a Holy Spirit who is fighting for us and fighting with us in that. There's a third answer here. It's in verse 11. Jesus says, I am no longer in the world, and yet they themselves are in the world. I come to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, the name which you have been given me. Will you all read this next part with me? Start with that. Here we go. One, two, three. That they may be one even as we are. We're given each other. Do you see this? We're given each other specifically that we might know that we know Jesus. You are given your church specifically that you might know that you know and the person around the room might know that they know Jesus to help each other know that we know. What's your relationship with your church? I mean, does it even scratch the surface of may they be one as, even as we are one? Does it scratch the surface of that at all? Because a lot of us, it's just like a, a mark on the calendar. It pops up in our notes and we show up, right? You might even go into a life group but not truly be known by those people. Do you realize that, that we're invited to lean in to the gift of the church? In fact, do you realize Ephesians 4 says that the moment that you turn to Jesus, the moment of your salvation that you are given spiritual gifting, and in that very same moment, not only are you given gifting, but you are made to be a gift and given to the church. Do you realize that? It's Ephesians 4. When you trust Jesus, you're given gifting, and then you are made to be a gift to the church that you might help one another know that you know Jesus and grow in his grace. And this is why Hebrews 10 tells us that we shouldn't be stingy with our presence. <laughs> it says that we shouldn't be stingy with our presence, but we should lean into each other. And I color-coded this for you. I want you to see this. Look at this on the screen. God gave us the church so that our, look at red there, so that our faith 
our faith would be strengthened so that our lives would be filled with in blue hope. Do you see that? We have each other so that our faith would be strengthened and our lives would be filled with hope, that we would be able to push each other. Your text may say stir one another up or provoke one another to love and good works. You're given your church so that we can push each other to the good stuff in life, which is the God stuff. The God stuff is the good stuff. You lean into your church. We're pushing each other into the good stuff that we wouldn't miss out on abundant life one day of the week, right? And we're given the church so that we would encourage one another there in orange, that we would encourage one another and all the more until Jesus returns for us. How can I remember who I am and what I've been given when I have doubts and I begin to fizzle? Well, remember we have God's word to remind us over and over again who we are. We have the intercessory ministry of the second and third person of the Trinity and we have each other. That's what we're here for. We have each other. Now there's the last question and it's an awkward question to face. What about Judas? Right? And you didn't see his name in the text. Some of you are going, well, Judas, he wouldn't, what, what was he here? So we look at verse 12. It says, while I was with them, Jesus says, I was keeping them in your name, which you've given me, and I guarded them. And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, it's Judas, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Notice he says none but the son of perdition, or your, your, your text may say the son of destruction, but then he says, but it's according to the scriptures. In other words, it never surprised God that Judas betrayed Jesus. Never surprised. In fact, it was in the scriptures in Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. Jesus would say the exact same thing when Judas betrayed him, right? And it, God's foreknowledge of this in no way caused Judas to be a betrayer. God just knew that he would be a betrayer. Jesus, even in grace and mercy, knowing that Judas would betray him, it was inevitable it would happen. He even warned Judas. He said, woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. He warned Judas. This isn't going to be good. And four times at least he alluded to or warned the disciples that this was going to take place. Write these verses down uh, and look at them this week. John 6, 64 through 71, Jesus says that Judas never really believed that he was the Christ. Judas liked him some. He wanted to be around him some. Whatever his motivations were, he never really rested in Jesus as being the Savior. Uh, John 13, 11, this is when Jesus is washing the disciples' feet. You remember the moment? He's washing their feet. He says, all of you are clean except one of you is not clean. And then a few verses later in verse 18, he says, uh, all of these have been chosen and given to me, but one was not chosen. And then John 18, as he's being arrested and Judas is leading the crowd to come and take Jesus after the Garden of Gethsemane, he looks at Judas in the eyes and he prays above. He says, Father, all those that you've given me, and I haven't lost one. And Judas is right there. And that's got to be such a strange thing for this, the disciples to hear over and over again. You've got to wonder if they're hearing Jesus keep dropping these hints, keep dropping these clues, and they're going, like, what are you talking about? Who is it? And they're looking around at each other and going, this guy looks good. This guy looks good. You know, he was sharing the gospel down the street the other day. This guy was a part of a healing miracle. He was passing out the fish and the loaves. We were in the water and he seemed to be doing okay. He was a little fearful. Was it him? No. They're looking and they look around and they go, we all seem to be firm in our faith. We seem to be solid. Like Alka-Seltzer, it seems like it's, it's substantial and it's good for us. But Jesus keeps alluding to it. Was, was Judas... Did he look like a disciple? Did, did people think he was a disciple? Yes and yes. 
But was he a disciple of Jesus? No. No, and the, the, the truth is, a faith that fizzles at the finish was faulty from the first. And I practiced saying that a lot this week. <laughs> faith that fizzles at the finish was faulty from the first. First John tells us this, First John 2.19. They went out from us, but they were really not of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. In other words, if you have it, you never lose it. And if you don't have it, you never had it. Maybe you liked the style of life. You agreed with the moral. You liked the music. You liked some of the people. But you never said, Jesus, all I am is yours. You be my king. And this is a great place for us to end today as we make our way through Lent toward Easter, praying with Jesus with one eye open on the cross. And that's ensuring that the thing that we have placed our life in is truly a faith and dependence upon Jesus Christ. It's not just a genre of life or an activity that has filled our, our appointment book. To ensure that we know that we know him. And do you know that it's possible to, to attend church for 50 years to go to Bible study every week, to spend hours pouring through books of theology, to give tithes, to go on mission trips and still not know Jesus, to not know that he's infinitely valuable, infinitely wonderful, to not know that there's more satisfaction in his right hand than in achieving all of the goals that you set out for your life every ambition to be satisfied, every, every wish list item in your Amazon cart to be delivered to your front door, everything you've ever wanted in this life that you could have ever thought of, ever put your eye on, there's more satisfaction in his right hand than all of that. Do you know that? Do you know that you know that? Do you know him? Not facts and figures. Do you know him? Do you know his love washing over your life? Do you know his joy which sustains you in the darkest of days? Do you know his peace that's unexplainable except I'm not alone, God is with me? Do you know him like that? And this morning, I want to, I don't do this often, but I want to have you bow your head and close your eyes right where you are. And we have a few people who are prayer partners this morning who will be at the sides in back of the room and they'll be against the wall and you'll see them there and they're there to pray with you and to pray for you to hear you maybe you don't have the answers but what you have are some questions or you have a story to tell and Mark and Ken and Teresa and Shelby and Jesse are here and I'm here to receive you this morning and I'd invite you from the place that you are right now to make today the day that you begin to wrestle with the authenticity of your relationship with Jesus and to take advantage of the church and allow them to help you know that you know. Know that you know him. And so I'm gonna say a prayer and when I say amen, 
I invite you to continue praying where you are. Maybe some of you just need to praise Jesus in your seat, just to thank him for your salvation, for his intercession, God, for his word. And others of you may want to pray with someone. And I'd ask you to do it. Do it today. Jesus, thank you for leaving glory, leaving heaven, coming to earth, being put through all the pressures of brokenness, all the struggles that we face. You didn't have to. You did so that we would know, we could identify with you, that we would know that you are for us and that you get us and that you love us. And thank you for the moments before your arrest and crucifixion that what was on your mind wasn't, how can I get out of this? But it was, oh, Father, not as I will, but your will be done. Your will be done. That people would see your justice and your holiness and your love and they'd receive life. And this morning I pray for those who either don't know that they know or those who know that they don't know. I pray this morning, whatever has kept them in the past from receiving eternal life in Jesus Christ, this morning they would trust you for it. And Holy Spirit, we trust in you, we depend on you. Would you help us this morning to walk in faith, to walk in obedience, and to fight for each other. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>